Uh, we're in our series on 1 John. Uh, the series has been interrupted some and will continue to be interrupted some. It's just what we do here. We, we're into interruptions, and uh, so that's what's going to happen. But we're in 1 John 2 this morning. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, there's probably one in front of you underneath one of the seats in front of you, or you can just look on the screen. All the text will be on the screen. The words love and hate are most often not interconnected, most often not together. But there is a love that God hates. Don't forget that statement. There is a love God hates. And that love is described in 1 John 2, starting in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Verse 17, and the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. We're going to take this text and break it into pieces and then put it back together. Hopefully it will make sense. The word world is mentioned six times in these three verses. Scripture uses the word world to mean three different things. One is nature itself. The word world sometimes is referring to nature itself. Nature is defined as the collective phenomena of the physical earth in addition to vegetation and animals. Acts 17, verse 24, God who made the world. The world there is a reference to, the, to nature of the earth and all that is included. God who made the world and everything in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth. God is not teaching us that we are not to love nature. We don't worship nature, that is pantheism, but we can love nature. We can appreciate and should appreciate nature because God created nature. Second, the word world can mean mankind. Mankind, that is the sum total of the human race, the totality of humanity, uh, the entire Homo sapien species. According to the United Nations, this past November 15th, and I have no idea who counted, but according to the UN, this past November 15th, the global population reached 8 billion people. 8 billion. It's interesting, in 1991, a man who was still alive named Les Knight formulated a movement called the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. Uh, that movement, and Mr. Knight himself, calls on people to abstain from procreation, meaning don't have more babies. Uh, he's calling on us not to reproduce in order to cause the gradual extinction of the human race. Mr. Knight believes that human extinction is the best solution to the climate crisis. So, uh, Mr. Knight... Uh, congratulations. Human extinction is a fantastic idea. Uh, you go first. Um, human extinction isn't part of God's plan. I'm sorry. He's mistaken. Third, the word world uh, can mean Satan's global system. 
Satan's global system, this invisible, spiritual, and sometimes evil system that Satan himself rules over. We still use, um, in our vernacular, we still use the word world to describe a system. An example of that, some of us that are older uh, should remember, was the wide world of sports. The Wide World of Sports was a television program that aired on Saturday afternoons uh, from 1961 through 1998. I remember watching it often, and uh, the the host was a sportscaster named uh, Jim McKay. Um, I want us to see a clip from that. Uh, This is from, the I think, 1983, so the definition isn't as good as what we are accustomed to now, but see if we remember this uh, video. Spanning the globe to bring you the constant variety of sport, the thrill of victory, and the agony of defeat. The human drama of athletic competition. This is ABC's Wide World of Sports. Brought to you by Ford and your local Ford dealer who invites you to see the 1983 Ford cars and trucks. Have you driven a Ford lately? By Midas, with over 1,200 Midas muffler and brake shops. Trust the Midas touch for any muffler or brake work you need on your American or imported car. And by Honda Portable Generators for camping, hunting, boating, even charging your car battery. How many of you remember that? Okay. I always felt sorry for that skier, I believe from Yugoslavia, who illustrated the agony of defeat. Um, I'm certain he was in much agony after that fall. Um, But the wide world of sports described this global system of athletic competition. So world can mean a system. And in a similar sense, there is a global system that Satan himself controls. John 12, verse 31, Jesus alluded to that. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world, this system, will be cast out. The ruler of this world system is a reference to Satan. 1 John 5, 19, we that, uh, we that we are of God and the whole world, the system, lies under the sway, sway meaning rule, control, jurisdiction, under the jurisdiction of the wicked one. Satan rules this system and demons are his agents. It is from this third form of the world that we derive the word worldliness. Worldliness, probably we haven't heard that word often of late. Worldliness is defined as a concern about Satan's system and its values rather than a spiritual existence. A concern about Satan's system and its values rather than a spiritual existence. Preachers have long preached against worldliness. That's because Scripture warns us against being conformed to this satanic system. Romans 12, 1 and 2, this is familiar. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, 
which is your reasonable service. Verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world. Meaning don't be conformed to the system. The problem is that in a practical sense, worldliness is sometimes subjective. Meaning some things some people consider to be worldliness, other people don't see as worldliness because the Bible isn't definitive about some things we would consider questionable. One example of, uh, of worldliness sometimes being something subjective and questionable was from Charles Spurgeon. Now, if you were a first-generation Christian, I wouldn't expect you to recognize that name, but Charles Spurgeon is the most often quoted preacher from modern times. He was born in 1834, the oldest of 17 children. I'm not sure what got into his parents, but he was the oldest of 17. He was converted to Christ at age 15 and started preaching not long after that. Spurgeon preached some 3,600 different sermons, and he often preached in person, sometimes 13 times per week. He pastored London Metropolitan Tabernacle, the largest church of his time. He could be heard preaching without electronic amplification to a crowd of 23,000 people. In print, he published some 18 million words, and during his lifetime, not counting since then, during his lifetime, he sold more than 56 million copies of his sermons that were printed in 40 different languages. He became so popular that if someone from the States were to visit England, once this person returned, the curious question from friends wouldn't be, did you see the Queen? But did you hear Mr. Spurgeon preach? He was phenomenally popular. Some people aren't aware of this, but Charles Spurgeon smoked a cigar. Medical science was more primitive in the second half of the 19th century, so smoking was actually considered beneficial to someone's health. Spurgeon claimed that his doctor had prescribed a cigar for him as a relaxant. We now know different. We now know that tobacco contains dangerous carcinogens. Someone that smokes exposes himself to a toxic mixture of dangerous chemicals. At least 70 of them are known to cause cancer. Uh, those cancer-causing chemicals are called carcinogenins. And some of those that are found in tobacco smoke are nicotine, hydrogen cyanide, formaldehyde, lead, arsenic, ammonia, certain radioactive elements, benzene and carbon monoxide and on and on and these carcinogens are the reason smoking is the number one preventable cause of death in the US each 12 month period in this nation almost one half million people die from a smoke related cause and some 40,000 people die from exposure to second hand smoke but most people in Spurgeon's time didn't understand as we do now the serious consequences of smoking so smoking wasn't necessarily considered uh, a prohibitive practice Remember Spurgeon pastored in London, and some London businessmen started marketing 
the same cigars Spurgeon smoked. He once entered a store and read a sign advertising a particular brand of cigars, and it read something to the effect, Spurgeon smokes our cigars. Seeing that bothered him, that concerned him, as he didn't want to be known for the brand of cigar he smoked. Add to that Spurgeon's ongoing health problems that smoking seemed to complicate, so Spurgeon made a conscious decision to stop. And Pastor Spurgeon became a non-smoker. Let me state up front, on a personal basis, I would discourage using tobacco. Chewing, smoking, vaping, all of that is dangerous. Uh, Our house is a smoke-free zone. Our church campus is a smoke-free zone. Um, None of our staff smoke. None of our elders smoke. Um, If possible, I believe uh, we should avoid secondhand smoke. I know it it bothers us if we uh, go through the gaming area of a casino. Uh, It's extremely uncomfortable to do that because we feel like we have this smell on us that isn't coming off. Now, smokers don't smell that smell, but we do as non-smokers. But using tobacco isn't a one-size-fits-all practice. There's differences in how often someone smokes. Chain smoking is a prescription for serious negative health consequences. But some people don't do that. And then different cigarette brands have different amounts of nicotine content. And most often, I understand A cigar smoker doesn't actually inhale the cigar smoke. Someone would argue that an occasional cigar, as some of our men do, isn't as dangerous as eating a consistent diet of junk food, and that's probably true. I don't recommend that either. Um, But that means to some degree smoking is a subjective practice. And I don't mean to stand judgment over someone that does smoke. One of the greatest apologists of modern times Uh, was R.C. Sproul, brilliant, brilliant man, but he smoked, and uh, his uh, commitment to Jesus was never in question, but he died, I believe prematurely, uh, because he died from complications from COPD, which were the result of smoking. Uh, So the individual Christian needs to determine for himself if smoking in some form constitutes worldliness and should be avoided. I've made the decision it is for me. But there are biblical principles that are applicable to this question, and that's important because the Bible never mentions smoking per se in a direct sense. Um, But there are principles that are applicable, such as our bodies are God's possession on loan to us, so we are commanded to care for them and not abuse them. 1 Corinthians 6.19 reads that our bodies are a temple that God inhabits. And we tend to forget that. As one author said, instead of respecting our bodies as temples, we act as though our bodies are amusement parks. And that's not a good thing. The strangest thing is, though, that the system itself, the system, um, is pushing against tobacco. It's pushing back. I mean, there are caution labels and warning labels and, you know, no smoking areas and zones, and that's good. The system is pushing back against tobacco use and now instead is encouraging using cannabis. Recreational, non-medicinal cannabis 
is a serious problem and something we should discuss at another time. So wait for the sermon on should Christians smoke wheat? I'll do something like that. Okay. Um, this is sad to me, but this is the direction the church seems to be moving. Musician Amy Grant, uh, notice the rainbow necklace. Amy is married to Vince Gill, who is a, um, a country music artist. Uh, Amy is one of the most recognizable contemporary Christian music artists the past four and a half plus decades. She is a crossover artist. She is an also pop artist. She has won six Grammys, 22 Dove Awards, and she recorded the first Christian album to go platinum. A platinum record is a recording that has sold more than one million copies. She has been extremely successful. She has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and President Biden honored her as a recent recipient of the Kennedy Center Authors. But Amy Grant has endorsed the LGBTQ community. Uh, there's even a Gay Friends of Amy Grant group on Facebook, and she has made numerous pro-LGBTQ uh, statements, including, she said this, quote, gay, straight, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how we behave. It doesn't matter how we're wired. Um, I find a problem with that. It doesn't matter how we behave. That's antithetical to Scripture. It does matter how we behave. Um, just three months ago, she hosted a gay wedding on her farm. Her niece is a lesbian and wanted to find a suitable wedding venue, so Amy offered her farm, uh, the same location where she and Vince were married. Um, it was more than a goodwill gesture, though. It was a public affirmation of same-sex marriage. Her argument for being so permissive was, quote, from a faith perspective, I always say Jesus just narrowed it down to two things, love God and love each other. I mean, hey, that's pretty simple. I agree. The two greatest commandments found in Matthew 22 are love God and then love people. Love God, love people. The problem is Ms. Grant doesn't understand biblical love. Remember, there he is, we said up front, a love God hates. And that's the love Amy Grant has in celebrating a sexual practice that is part and parcel to the satanic world system. God hates that form of love. God condemns that form of love. Franklin Graham from Samaritan's Purse protested Amy's decision to host a gay wedding, but she blew off that criticism. And it is for that same reason that Franklin Graham cited that I don't believe Christians should attend a same-sex wedding. It's not that we cannot love the participants. We can and we should. But we cannot in good conscience celebrate something that God has condemned. I have friends in a distant state um, who have a son who is a brilliant young man. He is uh, an attorney. He had a gay partner, and he and his partner decided to be married recently. Um, his parents are committed Christians and committed to a biblical worldview and biblical traditional moral values, and he wanted so much for his parents to attend his gay wedding. And his parents, who are consistent in demonstrating and manifesting love toward their son, said, son, we love you, but we can't. We can't in good conscience celebrate what we believe God is condemning. 
we love you, we love your partner, but we can't do that. And it was devastating to him. And it was difficult for them, but they maintained their posture and said, we can't. We cannot love the world and love God at the same time. If we love someone, then sometimes we should dare to tell them the truth. And in this case, the truth is that marriage is between a man and a woman. Amy made the statement about her niece's wedding, quote, I love those brides. Brides, plural, because there was no groom. And because there was no groom, there was no actual biblical marriage. Marriage is between a man and a woman, and there are no exceptions. But that's a love the world promotes. That's a love the system promotes. But that's not biblical love. People, that's a love God hates. It doesn't give anyone the right to disrespect someone who is a part of that community. You should never do that. We need to love them to Jesus. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Christians have no alternative but to exist in this system. We're stuck in the system. But notice we're not to love the system. And we're not to love the goodies in the system. If we do love the system and those things in the system, then according to verse 15, that's evidence we don't love God. Notice the phrase, if we love the world or the things in the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. That phrase doesn't mean God's the Father's love for someone uh, is non-existent, it isn't there. No, it means the opposite. It means someone's love for God the Father is non-existent and isn't there. And don't miss this, to the extent someone loves the world is the extent to which he doesn't love God. The extent to which someone loves the system is the extent to which someone doesn't love God. Loving God and loving the world system are mutually exclusive. First John describes three characteristics a true Christian is to possess. One, a Christian loves God. That is to be above all, above all else. A Christian loves God. Second, a Christian loves other Christians. In addition to loving God, in a vertical sense, we are to, in a horizontal sense, love other Christians. And third, a Christian doesn't, doesn't love the world system. A man named Demas actually assisted Paul uh, he was a co-laborer to Paul. But at some point, Demas abandoned Paul. Demas became a spiritual defector. Notice 2 Timothy 4 verse 10. Paul said this, For Demas has forsaken me. Why? Having loved this present world. Demas loved the system more than he loved God, more than he loved Paul. And he has departed for Thessalonica. So Demas had assisted Paul, but then left him. The Greek verb used in the original language here implies that Demas hadn't just left Paul, but left him in a lurch. Meaning Demas left Paul during a time of need. Paul was in prison, facing a death sentence. And it was at that point Demas chose to exit stage right. One commentator said, just as Jesus had Judas, Demas was Paul's Judas. He felt betrayed. Notice that Demas left Paul and moved on to Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a large urban city on the main east-west trade route. 
in Asia Minor that offered all the materialistic, immoral, and philosophical allurements that the world could offer him. And that's where he went. Most people have heard about the seven deadly sins. Now, there is no such exact itemized biblical list of seven deadly sins. But in 590 A.D., Pope Gregory revised a list that was in circulation called the seven capital sins or seven cardinal sins. The famous theologian, brilliant man, Thomas Aquinas, defended that list. And that is the more common list that is used now. Those seven deadly sins are lust, primarily sexual lust, illicit sexual lust, gluttony, overconsumption, greed, this attitude that enough is never enough, sloth, slothfulness is laziness or idleness, wrath, this is a serious form of anger, most often unjustified anger, then envy, wanting what someone else has, and then pride, having a higher opinion of ourselves than we should. I found some creative person, anonymous person, I don't know the name of this person, someone extremely creative has assigned a phone app that corresponds to each of these seven deadly sins. Listen to this. Corresponding to lust is the app Tinder. Now, if you don't know what Tinder is, you don't need to know what Tinder is. Tinder is an extremely dangerous app. No Christian should have that app on their phone. Second, gluttony. Gluttony corresponds to Yelp, according to this man. Third, greed. Greed corresponds to LinkedIn. Now, none of these are exact. Obviously, there's legitimate reasons for these apps. Uh, sloth, slothfulness, corresponds to Netflix. I can see that. And then wrath corresponds to Twitter. People say some very angry hateful things on Twitter. And then envy corresponds to Facebook. And then pride corresponds to Instagram. I am proud to say I have none of those apps. Um, none of them. My wife has Facebook. She's kind of a sinner. Um, anyway. <laughs> oh, that was a joke. That was a joke. That's a joke. Our church is on Facebook. Our church is on Instagram. Uh, I don't want to say. It's interesting to me, though, how the world system can use amoral social media to accommodate man's immoral vices. Isn't that interesting? And that's because Satan is smarter than we give him credit for. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. According to verse 16, this entire world system consists of three basic things. One, the lust of the flesh. Notice the definition. The lust of the flesh is an overpowering desire for something God has forbidden. The word flesh describes our inherited. We inherit this through generation after generation, going back to our ancestor Adam. Our inherited internal susceptibility to sinning human nature. And lust means desire or cravings. The actual word lust can be used in either a positive or negative sense. 
And in this case, lust describes a negative, overpowering, craving, and desire to be satisfied, even if it means exceeding the boundaries God has established for someone's normal appetites. An example is food. Desiring food is normal. Desiring food is a necessary bodily function God has created in us. Eating food is a good thing. Correction, eating good food is a good thing. Some of my, what my mother fed me was not a good thing. Um, she, I, I won't go into that. Um, but, but the temptation is to fulfill that legitimate desire of eating, satisfying someone's hunger, to fulfill that legitimate desire in an illegitimate manner. That's called gluttony. Gluttonous lust or gluttonous desire exceeds those limits, exceeds those boundaries God has established for someone's normal appetite. And that's unacceptable. To desire to negotiate a successless business deal or to score the most points in a game or to get onto the dean's list are all legitimate desires. But to deceive a client in order to get that contract or to ignore the rules or or to use performance enhancing drugs in order to score those points or to cheat on exams in order to get on the dean's list all of those means of getting the desired results are unacceptable because they're illegitimate winning at all costs is not a biblical mantra second the lust of the eyes The lust of the eyes, once more the word lust means desire. Definition, the lust of the eyes occurs when we see something that incites in us a desire for something God has forbidden. When we see something that in a visual sense incites in us a desire for something God has forbidden, our eyes can get us into serious trouble. Our eyes have appetites. Most people have heard the phrase, feast your eyes on this. There are numerous biblical examples of characters whose eye problems got them into serious trouble. One of the most pronounced one was a man named Achan. Achan. The Israelites had conquered Jericho. Most people have heard of that account. Jericho imploded. And God instructed his people not to take spoils from Jericho for themselves. But notice that Achan violated those instructions. He took some of those spoils for himself. He was caught, and then he confessed his sin to Joshua. Joshua acted as the general responsible for Israel's armies. Notice verse 20. This is from Joshua 7, verse 20. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I have done. I have to give him credit. He is transparent. He's authentic. He's honest about what he had done. Verse 21. When I saw. Notice he's describing the lust of the eyes. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and took them. And there they are, hidden in the earth, in the midst of my tent, with the silver under it. Achan couldn't resist what his eyes had seen. 
So he confiscated those forbidden items. The end result of his disobedience was most unfortunate as he and his immediate household, his entire immediate household and his livestock were all stoned to death and then all his possessions were burned. A second example is David. David from 2 Samuel 11 verse 2. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. Remember in the Middle East in ancient times, people would go up on their roofs uh, to appreciate the coolness of the evening. And uh, it was a common thing to do. And so David is walking on the roof of his palace. And from the roof, he saw, notice, he saw, he's describing This is describing the lust of his eyes. He saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. That beautiful woman bathing was Bathsheba. David was married, uh, but David, after seeing Bathsheba, his eyes, his eyes, he just couldn't resist what his eyes had seen. So David sent his messengers to retrieve Bathsheba. Those men brought Bathsheba to his bedroom, and David had sexual relations with her that night. I seriously doubt it was consensual, as she was probably pressured. She was a married woman, and uh, because he was the king, she was probably afraid to resist his sexual advances. The consequences from David's adulterous sin were catastrophic. It would require another five minutes to itemize all that happened in a domino effect after this sin. But notice where it started. It started in the eyes. The lust of the eyes is the reason pornographic images are so dangerous. Listen to these statistics. And these numbers pertain just to the U.S. Global numbers are even more staggering. In this nation alone, more than 40 million people of all ages are regular visitors to porn sites. The average visit to a porn site lasts 6 minutes and 29 seconds. There are some 42 million porn websites, totaling 370 million pages of porn. The porn industry's annual revenue is more than the National Football League, the National Basketball Association, and Major League Baseball combined. It is also more than the combined revenues of ABC, CBS, and NBC. 47% of families, meaning almost one half of families, have reported that pornography is a problem in their household. Pornography use also increases the marital infidelity rate. More than 300%. I'm not surprised. 11 is the average age a child is first exposed to porn. 11. And 94% of children see porn by age 14. 6.5% of divorces involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. I have seen porn destroy marriages. Get this, this is serious. 68% of men, 68%, meaning more than two-thirds of men that attend church on a regular basis, and more than 50% of pastors watch porn 
on a consistent basis. It is by the grace of God and only by the grace of God that I'm not one of those more than 50% of pastors that watch porn. But I have to be on constant guard against sexual temptation. I am a man. I am human. And I could fall. Better men than me have fallen. So I have to stand guard against this. Of Christian adults, ages 18 through 24, some 76% actively search for porn. 59% of pastors have said that married men seek them, seek them for their help for porn use. Just 13%, this is one of the most shocking statistics, just 13% of of self-identified Christian women say they never watch porn. Meaning 87% of Christian women have watched porn? That's mind-boggling. 55% of married men And 25% of married women admit to watching porn at least once a month. 13.5% of pastors say porn addiction is the most damaging issue in their congregation. These are tragic statistics. This is the reason Job 1 verse 31 reads, Job said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? Meaning, why should I look with lust at a young woman? Lusting after a woman we aren't married to, according to Jesus' comments from Matthew 5, 27 and 28, constitutes adulterous sin. This sin happens in our minds, but Jesus said it was serious. Lusting after someone we aren't married to is wrong. So Job made a covenant or an agreement with his eyes that he wouldn't lust after another woman. And gentlemen, I understand um, God made women to be beautiful creatures. There's no question. I can even imagine how beautiful Eve must have been. That's before the fall. Women are beautiful. And as women age, women work real hard to stay beautiful. And I appreciate that. And I don't think it's wrong to appreciate a woman's beauty. I do not. Or even to compliment her. We have to be careful as men, but to compliment her on her beautifulness. But there's a difference, a fine line between appreciation and lecherous lusting. And gentlemen, we are not to go there. Remember this name, covenant eyes. Covenant eyes. Covenant Eyes is a program that operates on computers and mobile devices that monitors someone's internet activities, all of them, and then sends accountability reports of those activities to those people the user has designated to receive them. It's an accountability setup. Covenant Eyes establishes boundaries that can enable someone to use electronic devices and still be porn-free. I know of one large Christian university that offers this program, Covenant Eyes, free to the entire student body, both men and women. I might add, if you struggle with porn, and if you do, it might be that no one else knows. It's a private thing. But you're struggling. I would beg you to come see me. Um, 
your name and your struggle would never be even whispered to another person. It would be completely in confidence and anonymous, but it's a terrible addiction. And uh, there is help available. And so, and I'm not better than you, understand that. But I am available to help if that is something you have a struggle with. Let me mention another biblical example that, that is often ignored. Luke 17, 32 contains a three-word verse. Three words. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Jesus was referencing somewhat something from Genesis 19. Remember, Abraham uh, was the physical progenitor of the Jewish people. Abraham was the beginning of the Jewish race. Abraham was the genealogical father of the Jewish people, the Hebrews. Abraham had a nephew named Lot. Lot and his household were residents of Sodom and Gomorrah and shouldn't have been, shouldn't have been there, but were because the other inhabitants of those cities practiced gross evilness, including sexual perversion. God's patience was exhausted and he determined to annihilate those cities. In order to save Lot from destruction, two angels were dispatched to Sodom and told Lot and his immediate household to, as soon as the destruction would happen, to flee to the mountains. The angels said, run, run, don't stop, and don't look back. The angels understood the power of the lust of the eyes and said, don't, don't look back. God then proceeded to rain down burning sulfur on those cities, and today their ruins are buried underneath the south end of the Dead Sea. Genesis 19, verse 26. Notice what happened. But his wife, Mrs. Lot, looked back behind him. She's following Lot, and she looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Lot's wife didn't just quickly glance over her shoulder as she ran to see the devastation, but it would seem she stopped. She turned around and looked back toward Sodom as if she regretted leaving Sodom and as if she wanted to return to Sodom. She sinned using her eyes. And so God turned her into a statue of salt. One additional lesson from that account is that if we are where God doesn't want us to be, then run. Don't stop and don't look back. I am concerned about the state of the church. The church is moving in a wrong direction. The church is, in a progressive sense, being conformed more and more after this system. And it is bothersome to me. I'm hearing about more and more Christians going clubbing. I don't mean jazz clubs and some more innocent venues. I mean nightclubs where there's intentional, provocative dress and undress, where there are an abundance of illicit drugs, and where there is um, multiple accounts of drunkenness and there are promiscuous people there determined to find a one-night stand. I mean those places. Satan's system owns and operates those establishments. And Christians have no business being in those dens of spiritual darkness. 
Someone could argue, but Jesus was actually called the friend of sinners. Yes, he was, as we ought to be. But there was a difference. Jesus didn't hang around sinners as much as sinners hung around Jesus. And Jesus was a non-participant in their sin. The third component to the system is the pride of life. Notice the definition. The pride of life is this inflated human ego. This inflated human ego. This is the desire of each person to be in charge of himself. To essentially become his own God. And that is becoming more and more common. This form of pride isn't a sense of reasonable self-respect that all people should possess. This particular pride is an arrogance that has an undue sense of one's own importance and position. Biblical historian William Barclay describes this pride as referring to the man who stands on his own little self-created pedestal and looks down at others. That's not just true of politicians and celebrities. People, if we aren't careful, it could be true of ourselves. So the world system consists of uh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now notice Jesus commented on our relationship to that system. John 17, this is Jesus' prayer. He's going from the upstairs room where he and his disciples celebrated the Passover meal. He's walking toward the garden where he would be arrested in a matter of hours. He's praying. Notice verse 14. I have given them, meaning his disciples, your word. He's speaking to his Father God. And the world has hated them. Why? Because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. The world loves its own. The world loves its own participants and people that are connected to them, um, but it hates those that aren't a part of the system. Reminds me of this supposed comedian George Lopez. I just heard about this. He was a recent guest on that intellectually bankrupt television program called The View. I've never seen The View. I've only seen clips of stupidity from The View. Um, I told someone, I have a smart TV. He said, you do? I said, yeah, it's so smart that when the view comes on, it changes the channel. That's how smart it is. <laughs> Mr. Lopez looked into the camera and made this statement about drag queens. He said, if you're an enemy of drag, then you're an enemy of mine. Sign me up, George. That shouldn't surprise us. George Lopez is an active, participating part of the system. He's a card-carrying member of the system. As Christians, we aren't. So we shouldn't be surprised. Jesus said the members of the system would be our enemies, and those people would hate us. And they do. I don't think we should hate them. I think we should love them. Sometimes that's easier said than done. Verse 18, Jesus continued. Again, he's praying. As you... This is his Father God, sent me into the world, I also have sent them, sent his disciples into the world, into the system. Jesus said, we have been sent into the world system. Our mission is the Great Commission. We are commanded to preach the gospel to all people groups. We aren't called on to hang out in holy huddles and isolate ourselves from the system. That's what the Amish do. My first roommate in college 
was uh, from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. That is an Amish area. And he came from a Dutch Amish family, Pennsylvania Dutch. And uh, his parents were traditional Amish. And he had the hottest car on campus, so I don't know how that worked. Um, There were some 250,000, one quarter of a million traditional Amish people in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, Those people reside in some 200 old order Amish settlements. The largest settlements are found in Pennsylvania, Indiana, Iowa, Illinois, and Kansas. The Amish people have some fantastic values and are some amazing people. I've eaten, I've eaten their food. Amazing cooks, amazing bakers. If you go to R.C. Willie, the most expensive and nicest quality furniture in that building, Amish have built. They're amazing craftsmen. I understand more than 100 Amish master carpenters built the Ark Encounter in Kentucky. And if you've not been to the Ark, put it on your bucket list. You need to go before heaven. It's phenomenal. But the Amish have taken this injunction, do not be conformed to the world, have taken that to the ultimate extreme. We don't need to do that. We shouldn't do that. We don't need to retreat from the system. We need to penetrate the system. The classic illustration of the relationship between the Christian and Satan's world system is the boat in the water. I'm assuming most people in this room have been on a boat at some point, a fishing boat, Uh, a ski boat. Some of us have been on a large cruise ship. I cannot go on a cruise because I've come back 10 pounds heavier, but it's a cool thing. Uh, Some of our men have have been aboard uh, large naval vessels, Coast Guard ships. Um, In Southern California, uh, we would visit the famous Queen Mary in the uh, docked in the Long Beach Harbor. Amazing ship. Actually performed a wedding on the Queen Mary. A boat in the water is the expected norm. Boats are constructed to be in the water. But if the water gets into the boat, then there's a problem. Remember the Titanic? That's a dramatic example of water getting into the boat. God never intended us to isolate ourselves from the world system. We are to invade that system, but we are to be distinct and different from that system to the extent that people around us see that difference. Verse 17, And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. John compared in this verse the temporary world system to the Christian's permanent existence. In the first half of this verse, John said the world system and all its contents are scheduled to end. All that is part of this system is temporary, and that includes material possessions. God has blessed us with possessions. We call them stuff. We all have stuff. Some are blessed to have more stuff than others, but we all have more stuff than do most people on this earth. And most of us, including me, have too much stuff. Stuff we've completely forgot we had. Uh, Stuff we don't need. And stuff we aren't using and haven't used and probably won't use. 
That's the reason one out of 10 U.S. households rent self-storage units. There are more self-storage units. I mean complexes, not the individual units. There are more self-storage complexes in the U.S. than all the McDonald's, Subways, and Starbucks combined. I'm not arguing, and we have a storage unit behind our church. We have stuff. We probably need to, you know, throw some of that stuff out. I'm, I'm not arguing that we have to become minimalist. I'm not insisting that we become a part of an Amish community or that we should become an ascetic. Asceticism is the practice of extreme self-denial and abstaining from most comforts and pleasures, such as Hermans and monks would do. I'm not suggesting those things at all, but we should remember that our stuff isn't permanent. Our possessions aren't permanent. The world passes away in a practical, personal sense the moment someone dies. All the temptations, all the enticements, and all the excesses of this system end the moment someone dies. And second, the world passes away in a global, permanent sense the moment Satan is incarcerated in the final hell. In Revelation 20, verse 10, Jesus has returned to the earth. And he casts Satan into the eternal hell, called Gehenna in the Greek language. And at that point, the world system ceases to exist. Satan's system cannot survive if Satan himself isn't there to rule over the system. So that's the absolute global end of the world system. But remember, that system can end for us in a personal and practical sense before then, at the moment we expire. In the second half of this verse, notice John said that the person that does God's will is scheduled to exist forever. So the question is, and what is God's will? John 6, verse 40, Jesus said, and this is the will of him who sent me. Who sent Jesus? God the Father sent his son Jesus to this earth. So this is God's will. That everyone who sees the Son, Jesus, and believes in Him may have everlasting life. God's will is that all people believe on His Son, Jesus, and receive this free ticket to heaven called eternal life. Second Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Meaning God's will is that all people come to repentance. Repentance means metanoma in the Greek language, change your mind about our sin. God's will is that all people repent from sin and receive His Son Jesus. And those that do have eternal life, meaning a permanent forever existence with Jesus Himself. And nothing is more important than that. Harry Truman, same name but a different Harry Truman than the former president, was the owner and caretaker of a lodge at Spirit Lake at the foot of Mount St. Helens. In late spring of 1980, seismologists sent warnings to Harry to evacuate. There were earthquakes that preceded the eruption of that mountain. 
numerous earthquakes, some of them intense in, um, on the Richter scale. And so seismologists said to Harry, you need to evacuate now. He refused. The police actually came to his home and told him to evacuate, and he refused. He continued in his stubbornness to refuse to evacuate. His response was, quote, no one knows this mountain better than Harry Truman, and it don't dare blow up on him. Wow. That's the pride of life. Those were famous last words. On the morning of May 18, 1980, some of us remember this, as the boiling gases beneath the mountain's surface bulged and buckled the landscape to its final limits, Harry cooked his eggs and bacon, he fed 16 cats the scraps, and he started planting some flowers around the lawn he had just mowed. At 8.31 a.m., the mountain exploded. Did Harry regret that stubborn decision in the millisecond he had before the concussive waves from that explosion, traveling faster than the speed of sound, flattened him and literally everything else for 150 square miles? Did Harry have time to mourn his stubbornness as millions of tons of rock disintegrated into a mushroom-shaped cloud that reached more than 10 miles into the Earth's atmosphere, much, much higher than we are in a commercial plane? Did Harry struggle against that wall of mud and ashes more than 50 feet in height that completely buried his cabin, his cats, himself, and the lawn he had just mowed? Or had Harry been vaporized like the people at Hiroshima? That mountain exploded with a force 500 times greater than the atomic bomb that leveled that Japanese city. In the end, after that eruption, Harry Truman became a folk hero in Washington State. He was seen smiling on posters, t-shirts, and beer mugs. Some people actually sang songs about old Harry. Harry Truman, that stubborn man that ignored all the warnings. And for Harry, the world system came to a sudden an abrupt ending. And at some point, this system will end for each of us. The difference is for the Christian, the end of Satan's system is the beginning of something so much better. We will outlast the system. We have eternal life. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, thank you for what we've learned. That's been different, I know. Uh, not a traditional, typical message, but we were just going through your word, and these were the verses we came to. I hope I've explained them adequately, hold but made sense. Father, if there's anyone in this room who does not have eternal life, they do not possess that ticket to heaven. If they're not certain of the next life after this life, if they don't know that their sins are forgiven, if they have no hope beyond the grave. Father, I pray that you would convict them and convince them to speak to me after this service and say, Pastor, I want to I talk to you. We'll set up an appointment soon, as soon as possible. And 
I, so I can show them from the scriptures how they can have Christ in a relationship with him that will change their life forever. Not just after this life, but during the rest of this life. There's nothing better than Jesus. And I want everyone in this room to have him. And I don't want anyone to miss heaven. So, Father, I commit this sermon to you, and I pray that you will use it to make a difference in each of us. And I thank you. And I thank you in the mighty, special name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, Yeshua. Amen.